Christ in Relationships is Dr. Joel Hunter's series, and he continues with the second message, Seeing God. From the New American Standard, Dr. Hunter's text is taken from Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 10, and it reads as follows. Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his garment as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. And the angel answered and said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen just as he said. Come see the place where he was lying, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and ran to report it to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them, and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren, to leave for Galilee, and there they shall see me. And now, let's join in for praise and worship, followed by Dr. Joel Hunter's series, Christ in Relationships, and his second message, Seeing God. Lord Jesus, we thank you that we can come this morning and celebrate you as a risen Lord. Lord, we realize that the cross is just your signature upon history and that we come and celebrate life because of your death, but we come because of your resurrection this morning. We come because we are your children and you have called us according to your name. And so, Lord Jesus, we celebrate who you are and what you've told us to be in you. We thank you that as we understand the fact that you are a God who is crowned with many crowns, and that you are alive today. We also appreciate the fact that you are a God of history, and that down through the ages you have demonstrated your grace so effectively and so clearly. And yet it took us a living Jesus for us to really understand what you came to do. And so, Lord, as we have celebrated you We celebrate the Christ who is alive. We celebrate the Lamb. We pray that you will now teach us through example, through your word. And may we be changed into the power of the resurrection, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We will now continue our celebration of Easter with a dramatic presentation that looks at the crucifixion and the resurrection through six different characters' perspectives. Four of these perspectives are based on characters we know from the Bible. There's an elder who was present at Golgotha when Christ was crucified. There's Mary, the mother of James, who experiences through her grandfather the phenomenon based on Matthew 27.52 where the righteous rose from the dead to proclaim Christ's victory. There's Simon Peter, one of Jesus' apostles, and Mary Magdalene, who followed Jesus throughout his ministry. 
The other two perspectives are from present-day characters. One is a father who is struggling with the fate of his own son. And another is a young woman who just recently became a Christian. The monologues you will hear from each of them go back and forth between the biblical characters and the present-day characters. While their stories span 2,000 years of time, yet today we know that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and He changes lives today, just as He did when He lived among us. I was an elder in the synagogue when the Nazarene first began his ministry. I was well respected and had a place of honor in the local council. It served me well to serve the synagogue, but I had long ago abandoned my faith. Faith? What does that mean? Stumbling blindly through life, refusing to see reality, and the work of having to make excuses for God when your prayers don't get answered. Nevertheless, in spite of myself, I was fascinated by this Nazarene. Perhaps he sparked some last ember of hope in me that all this religion, that life, may mean something. His ministry didn't last long. He was soon arrested for something or another and was to be crucified. I went to Golgotha that afternoon, out of curiosity, but mostly to stand smugly with the others from the council, looking on as we defended our religion by ridding it of heretics like this self-proclaimed God, I had only meant to observe. I hadn't seen my son James for quite some time. He had been off trailing after Jesus of Galilee. He believed that Jesus was the Messiah. Well, he desperately wanted to be involved with the Messiah. When James was younger, he would sit on my grandfather's knee and listen to stories about Abraham and Isaac. And whenever James would ask a question that my grandfather thought he could answer on his own... He would just wink at James and say, you tell me later. Well, I was thinking about those things one afternoon when James came running into the house saying that I had to hide him, that Jesus had been arrested and was to be crucified, and that they were looking for his followers. Of course, I hid my son, and I waited anxiously for that crucifixion to be over and for the safety of Passover to begin. Some of the elders with me began to mock him with his own words and prophecies. He saved others, but he can't save himself, laughing at his impotence. But something happened to me when I looked up into his sad face. I felt my heart race within me. That last ember of hope flickered deep down inside me. Was there a possibility that this was the Christ? And yes, I felt myself answer, there was that possibility. And if he was... Does that mean there is a God? And if there is a God, why has He kept Himself silent from me? I remember my longing when I first became an elder. My longing for a word from God that I wasn't just fooling myself. I needed something, anything from God to let me know that He was there and worth believing in. I lied awake all night, waiting for a voice or... A vision. But the sign never came. And so my calling to become an elder became a career. Now here I was standing in front of the Nazarene and feeling those same desires rise up in me again. I went with my friends to cry out some, some mockery, some abuse to, to show my callousness. How do you plan to rebuild the temple now, king of the Jews? But 
It was my heart that cried out from within me. I had meant it to sound snide and in control, but it had not been a jeer. It was my last desperate request for God to prove Himself to me. If you are the King of the Jews, if you are the Son of God, come down off the cross and we'll... And I'll believe in you. I started to think about some of the things that I had heard Jesus say. People were saying it was ridiculous to crucify a man for preaching love and peace. But his words were dangerous. He spoke of Yahweh as his father. He spoke of a commitment to love beyond brotherly bonds. And he was not claiming to deliver us from Rome, but from Satan. Now we choose our neighbors and our friends and our enemies. We decide who is for us or against us by what they wear, their political stand, their color, how they treat us. But he told us that anyone who follows the father of lies is our enemy. And anyone who follows him is our brother. Dangerous words. I dreamt of having a son my whole life, even when I was just a child myself. You see, I never knew my own dad, and, well, instead of bitterness, that loss always filled me with an intense desire to be a father. I married my high school sweetheart, Diana. She wanted kids as badly as I did, and by the end of our first year, we'd had our first child, a beautiful baby girl, Ellen. She's 12 years old now and thinking about dating. And two years after Ellen, we were blessed with Sarah. She's the troublemaker, and I wouldn't have her any other way. In our sixth year of marriage, Diana gave birth to twins, identical little girls, Miranda and Caitlin. So we had four gorgeous daughters, and although I wouldn't trade a single day with any one of them, I still longed for a son for whom to be a father, a son to guide into manhood. The longer I had followed him, the more my love for him grew. I had waited all my life for him, the Messiah. And Jesus was the Messiah, this I knew. He changed my name from Simon to Peter, the rock. Upon this rock, he said, I shall build my church. The Christ, the Son of God, said that to me. I knew I would do anything for him. I became a Christian about six months ago. It was at a prayer meeting that a friend of mine invited me to. I'd been looking into Christianity for quite a while... And I was so relieved and grateful when I felt this mystery come alive inside my own heart. Jesus Christ is my Savior. The Creator of the universe came into my heart to redeem me and give me eternal life. It's overwhelming that He loves me, loves us, wants all of us to prepare for His kingdom. Then Jesus was arrested. I followed the guards quietly, and we came to this place outside the prison walls where a bunch of people were hanging around trying to keep warm. I decided to wait there till morning to see what they were going to do with him. I guess it somehow got around at work that I'd been going to church, because one of the guys, Chris, asked me about it. A few others heard what he said, and they gathered around my desk. They weren't what you'd call close friends, but I'd partied with them a few times, and I knew what they believed in. Money, promotions, the good life. Chris asked me again, so do you believe all this religious stuff? I tried to just fit in there with the slaves and servants of the high priests. I huddled with them beside the fire trying to keep warm and trying not to draw attention to the fact that I was from Galilee. Then one of the slave girls recognized me. I heard one of the girls giggle. 
I've just been exploring spirituality, I said. You could almost feel the tension in the room when Chris asked, So, is Jesus Lord? The girl screamed in a loud voice, Didn't I see you with that uh, false messiah in there? Aren't you one of his disciples? I don't don't know him. him! Diana said she wanted one more baby. I was thrilled, although I tried to give my intense desire for a boy over to the Lord. She started having some problems in her second trimester. Blood test revealed an abnormality, and the doctor said he wanted a sonogram done immediately. It was a boy. Diana was carrying our son. The boy of my dreams since my childhood. The boy that I had loved since long before he'd ever existed. At last, I was going to be able to pour this love that I had for him onto him. We followed the rest of her pregnancy zealously. The last four weeks she spent entirely in bed. I wouldn't even let her get up to go to the bathroom. Emptying the bedpan became a chore of love of a promised son. The night that she went into labor, I held her hand so tight and I wouldn't let go until after hours and hours of hard labor, the doctor called me aside. The situation is serious, Philip, he said. He started to explain to me in medical terms what was happening, but I couldn't grasp it. I mean, we'd been through this four times successfully. What could possibly go wrong? I heard nothing he said until finally he said, we're losing him. I loved him with everything that I was. Some people would say that was because he had rid me of seven demons. But that wasn't why I loved him. That was just how I was able to love him. His gentle face and the love in his eyes became my reason to exist. And before I met him, my life was pointless. But with him, my life had meaning. Every day to love him, to do things for him such meaning. And then he began to talk more and more about his approaching suffering and death. And I couldn't understand why he would wish that on himself or how he could think about leaving us, about leaving me. Suddenly the sky had screamed out and its very elements seemed to shatter and the ground, it heaved in pain and anticipation. The veil in the temple, it was torn in two from top to bottom as if by God's very own hands. I fell to my knees. I waited for death. I don't know how long I lay there, but something urged me to look up. And there coming towards me to greet me was my dead grandfather. He looked so alive, so radiant. And he said, I have come to tell you to believe that he was, he is, and he is to come. I... I gulped my air. I tried to make some sense. And then he winked at me and he laughed. I ran home to tell James, my son, but he had gone. I hoped that he had gone to join the other disciples in order to continue to follow the one who is to come. For I knew, I know, Jesus is the Messiah. I picked out a name for my son. Matthew. means the gift of God. Then my thoughts turned back to my wife, Diana. I followed the doctor down the corridor and nodded to him as he went back into the room alone. Goodbye, Matt, I cried. 
Goodbye, my son. I broke down and sobbed tears that I know my son would never know I cried for him. I thought of my God, who had gone through such an agonizing time himself, willingly forsaking his own son for the lives of others. And I knew that my son would rise to be with God also because of this. I went home to collect the girls so that they could be with their mother when she awoke. Things at the synagogue continue as they always have. We don't talk much about that synagogue, that, uh, that Passover. There's no need to. He didn't come down. The minute the Sabbath was over, I ran to the tomb. And when I saw that his body was gone, I just knew it had been stolen. He was gone completely. He had been removed from me in every way possible. I sat by the tomb and I cried. A man came over to me and he asked me what was wrong. And I guessed that he was the gardener. And I asked him if he knew where Jesus' body was, that I might go and get it back. And he waited for a moment before he said anything to me. And that moment seemed forever until he spoke my name. Mary. And everything rushed back into me, my spirit and my life, as I recognized his voice. Rabbi! I cried out and I rushed over to him. And he rebuked me softly. Why is it that a rebuke from Christ is still more comforting than an outpouring of sentiment from a man? He told me not to cling to him in the way that I had known him as my Jesus, but to allow him now to become my Christ. My Jesus, whose love and acceptance had brought me healing on earth, was now my Savior, who wanted to make me one with the Father as he is one. Past love for him seemed so small as I realized that, having seen Jesus, I have seen the Father. If you have your scriptures with you, if you will turn to the 28th, chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, we will take into account Matthew's remembrance of what happened after the resurrection, and we will see why it is so important to talk about seeing Jesus physically. Verse 1, now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, this would be the mother of James and Joseph, came to look at the grave. What an interesting phrase. Came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning, his garment as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him, and became like dead men. Now, I don't want you to miss the irony here. Here's two guys that they stationed to make sure that the dead guy stays dead. Now the dead guy's up walking around, and they're the ones that look like they're dead. And the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid. In, in Greek, this is the present imperative tense, and it means stop being afraid. I know you're afraid right now. Don't be afraid anymore. Stop being afraid. For I know that you're looking for the Jesus who has been crucified. Now, let's stop 
right here before we read the rest of it. And, and let me ask you a question. Easter is for believers. It's a celebration that says what you have believed is real in fact. Now for the question, why was it that these two believers, these believers who probably knew Jesus better than any of us, were so quick to consign themselves to a place of simply looking at a grave? Why did they relapse into doubt, saying, well, it was good while it lasted. We had these great dreams, but evidently it was not to be. Well, I think I have part of that answer. It's what I call the Kathy Johnson complex. It's from a childhood experience that I had. You see, when I was growing up, a young boy in elementary school... I was like most of the young boys at that age. We had, si- we had, we had just signed off women for life. We, we just saw absolutely no use for having a girlfriend, for liking girls, being around girls. They were of absolutely no use to us. They were yuck. They had cooties. Just didn't need them. And I was a card-carrying member. But then one year... Kathy Johnson moved into town. And I cannot describe with my mouth the beauty of this young girl. The first day she walked onto the campus of Auburn Elementary School, I thought I was going to die. She just walked, she had this, she had this dress thing, you know, with the things under, the white things under it, the petticoats, things, stood out, never seen that before. She had, she had patent leather shoes that were shiny. She had lace on her socks and she had curls in her blonde hair. And when she walked, her dress bounced up and down and her hair bounced up and down and my heart bounced up and down. I thought, well, maybe, maybe I could just this one time have a girlfriend. Maybe I, Maybe I could get her to like me. And then I thought, wait a minute. This is stupid. Because as far on the spectrum of beautiful she was, I was that far on the spectrum of ugly. I'm not exaggerating. I had mirrors in my house. I wasn't kidding myself. I was this little boogerhead kid that just had freckles all over the place and a burr haircut. And besides that... I, we didn't have much money. I've told you this before, but I mean, back then it wasn't. I mean, who cared if you were poor? Because everybody was poor. You know, it didn't matter if you were poor until you wanted to impress somebody. Then it mattered. And here I was. All of us. It was the middle of winter, and all of us wore. See, everybody wore hand-me-downs. But all my friends had bro- had older brothers. I had an older sister. <laughs> and so when my winter coat wore out. My mother says, you've got to wear your sister's coat. I said, I can't possibly. It's, it's got pink in it. Men don't wear pink. It's all we got. You've got to wear it. So here I am in this gray and pink coat going to school. <laughs> Kathy Johnson's here, for crying out loud. And to add insult to injury, I had, the, when you didn't have jeans, you had corduroys. And those of you who remember corduroys, remember if you had fat little legs, remember they rubbed together. 
Remember that. And not only that, but you remember that periodically your your sole of your shoe would just kind of flap. And so I'd be walking down the hall, a little boom, flap, boom, flap, boom, flap, boom. It was pitiful. But I thought, maybe, you know, anything's possible. You know, it's a, I was kind of an early Schulerite. You know, if you can dream it, you can do it. Or Norman Vincent Peale or whatever. Maybe, you know, we live in a country where you're going to achieve anything. And maybe I can get her to like me. So I, I just... I just tried, you know. I'd pass her in the hall and I'd say, Hi, Kathy. She was always the picture of manners. Oh, hello, she'd say. <laughs> One day, this is so embarrassing, I, I, I'm reluctant to say it, but maybe if I talk about it and get it out, I'll feel better. <laughs> One day, everybody was out on the playground and, and a bunch of us guys were standing around the flagpole and and Kathy Johnson was approaching. I mean, just walking by and something in me snapped. I said, I have got to get this girl's attention. I've got to get her to like me. And thinking like a little boy, you know, little boys think, well, if I can do something to impress her, that'll get her to like me. And so all of a sudden I just stood on my head. <laughs> and I'm saying, I'm hearing myself say, look what I can do, Kathy. Look what I can do. There's this ugly little kid with a, his sister's coat down around his ears now. <laughs> shirt down. Yeah. Shoe flapping in the wind. <laughs> but she looked at me. And always the picture of manners. She said, how very nice. <laughs> and blended merc- mercifully into the crowd. I, I knew that day I'd lost her. I knew what an idiot I'd been to think that I could get somebody that to, that good to, to like me. And so for the rest of my life, until I met Christ, I carried around the Kathy Johnson complex that said, don't dream too big because you will inevitably be disappointed. This is the real world. You got to deal with reality. You got to deal with what God, what life gave you. And so, don't dream too big. I tell you, these women had the Kathy Johnson complex. As soon as their Savior was crucified, they went right back into those old ways of thinking, we should have known it. Too much to dream. We should have known it. See, that's how you think life is until you discover what real life is. Then the angel looked at him and said this. He's not here. He has risen just as he said. We'll come back to this in a minute. Come and see the place where he was lying and go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead and behold, he is going before you into Galilee. Galilee, by the way, has special significance. I haven't told this to any of the rest of them. Galilee is where he worked. It wasn't just... Jerusalem, where that was the center of worship, he was going to meet them where he worked in everyday life. There you will see him. You will see him. Behold, I have told you. 
And they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. Now, what did the angel mean when he said, He is risen as he said? You see, they had the choice to have two reference points for their lives, just as we have the choice to have two reference points. One reference point are all the messages we've heard all of our lives about how life is. And the other reference point is what we've heard from Jesus about how life is. And what determines the quality of our life is when we go through life and we run into snags, which reference point we take. You see, they can't be blamed for taking those old messages that had mounted up in their heads, that, that came automatically to them because they lived in a self-confined world, as all of us do, before we walk with Christ in the power of the resurrection. I heard a story one time about a girl named Sarah, who was a delightful young girl, hadn't had very many dates. And, and one day she was sitting in her living room and looking out through the glass doors, she saw her brother come in through the fence with a friend of his to go swimming. She'd never seen this particular friend before. He was gorgeous. And she just sat in there watching him, and he got out of the pool, and he walked toward the glass doors, and he stopped. And he looked, and he smiled. And then he went back and swam a little bit, and she thought, oh, that, that couldn't have been for me. <laughs> He's too cute. But he got out of the pool again, and came to the doors again and stopped, unmistakably smiled, and went back. And, well, she couldn't meet him like this. So she ran upstairs, and she put on some new clothes and some, made her face up and ran downstairs to meet this brother's boyfriend. But when she went out, her brother was all alone. She said, uh, <clears throat> so I uh, had a friend here, didn't you? I uh, saw, thought I saw somebody else. Where'd he go? The brother said, oh, he had to leave. Oh, she said. She turned around to walk back into where she had been sitting, and she noticed that the way the sun was situated that day, she couldn't even see into the room. All she could see was a reflection of herself. You see, he'd never seen her. He was just smiling at himself. Most of us live in that kind of world. Our point of reference is ourselves. And the thing that makes us weak about the faith that we think we have is that we don't believe that that is an actual faith for this world. That's some spiritual world. After we die, we'll go there if we believe. But the physical resurrection of Jesus says something different. The physical resurrection of Jesus says, no, wait a minute, we're here, we're now. It's just as substantive in your life right now. You know why people fall? You know why, you know why great spiritual leaders... Sometimes the greatest Bible teachers and the greatest Christian lives that you've witnessed. Do you know why they fall? I read an article about that this week from Blaine Smith, and I think he's right. He says the reason that these people fall, and you've seen people in your life who you have long admired, and you know that they were believers, 
And one day they just up and run off with the choir director and live a life saying, oh, I hope God forgives me, but i got to do this thing. And this article said he thinks he knows why, and I think he's right. He says the reason that happens is because these people are truly dedicated to the Lord, and they say, man, I'm going to, God, I'm going to just give you everything. I don't have to have anything. I'm going to give it and give it and give it. But in the back of their minds, they don't have enough faith to believe that following the Lord will result in substantive happiness in this world, just as substantive as anything you could have in the physical world. And so they're doing all of this sacrifice, and then they panic, and they say, no, i got to have some physical results too. i got to have something substantive in my life. And so they revert to the world to live the rest of their life. Well, let me tell you something. The physical resurrection of Jesus said to us, that God is a rewarder in a physical way for those who love Him. It says that in Hebrews 11.6. It says, and Without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. You see, you don't have to wait to get to heaven to have a substantive blessing just as real as anything else you could have in this life. That's why seeing Jesus was so important that day. Because he came into our world and he said, no, this is just as solid as anything you've got. You've got a choice. You can live in the world. You can confine yourself to your own boundaries. But that's not what you have to do. Let me read the last two verses. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. Now, the word used here is the, is, the, is the Greek for hello. It's a common greeting, but the root word is rejoice. I think that's what we ought to say to each other. If we see each other on the street, we ought to say rejoice. You know? Don't introduce Just say rejoice. I'll know where you're from. If you see me, say rejoice. I'll say rejoice back. We'll have a good deal. <laughs> Jesus met and greeted them. Rejoice. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, again, here it is, do not be afraid. Stop being afraid. Stop just living in that little world thinking, this is all I've got. Stop panicking, thinking, you know, I know I'll be happy in heaven, but I wish I could be happy here. Stop that. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they shall see me. Let me tell you one more story, and then I'm going to call the choir back. It's about this family from the hills of West Virginia who lived way out there and really didn't have any of the modern conveniences, but there was a mom and a dad and a little boy, Jimmy Bob, who needed treatment in a major hospital in the city, and so they traveled a long way, and and they were absolutely fascinated when they came into that hospital. All of the gadgets, they just were... Their mind was boggled by all of these gadgets. Little three-year-old Jimmy Bob didn't take much note of it, but they went in and they started to prepare him in the room, and the mom and the dad and the little boy are in there, and and, uh, the doctor needed to have a conference with the mom and the dad. So he called them out into the hallway, which left little three-year-old Jimmy Bob all alone, sitting on that bed. Well, the nurse at the station... Didn't want him to be lonely or scared, so she pressed the intercom button and she said, Jimmy, 
Total silence. Jimmy? Nothing. She said, Jimmy, I know you're there. And she hears this little bewildered voice saying, Okay, Wall, what do you want? We can spend the rest of our lives thinking that the whole world is just what we see, or we can realize there's a voice, there's a life, there's a person outside that is just as real as anything in our boundaries. That's what the resurrection is. That's what it's about. Pray with me. God, thank you for being just as real inside our boundaries as you are outside of our boundaries. God, if there's anybody here this morning who has lived just in their boundaries, thinking, well, maybe someday I'll I'll escape all of this. But what they've heard today makes them want to invite you into their world and make it your world. It makes them want to have their sins forgiven and become new through your crucifixion. It makes them want to live forever with you starting now. God, let them say, Jesus, come into my heart and live there. Make of my life whatever you want. And for the rest of us, God, help us to reference you when the bad times happen. And to realize you're just as much alive and just as present as any of those old tapes that are disillusioning are even more powerful. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I'm going to ask the choir to come back and set up, and we're going to celebrate with two more songs. First thing we're going to celebrate with is the Hallelujah Chorus, but it's a little different rendition. I I need to warn you here. The first time I ever heard this arrangement of the Hallelujah Chorus, I absolutely loved it. And so I went to Tim and I said, Tim, we got to do this. Tim said, Hunter, we can't do that. I said, oh, please, 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 just this once, please. Well, one thing about Tim is if you beg him and you look pitiful enough, he gives in. So, so this, is, this is something that I hope that you will enjoy just a fraction as much as I enjoy it, because I celebrate with this. And then we're going to sing the Easter song. We've been singing this Easter song uh, since before I got here, so I know it's at least ten years. So anyhow, uh, that's how we'll conclude the service. But to do the introduction to this Hallelujah Chorus, we are going to give you something that never changes, and that's the Word of God. In Revelation, it is written that Jesus Christ alone is worthy of our praise and adoration. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength, and honor, and glory, and praise. Hallelujah. Salvation, and glory, and power belong to our God. 
Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever.
Would you stand? Hear the bells ringing, they're singing that we can be born again. Hear the bells ringing, they're singing Christ is risen from the dead. Disciples that Jesus Christ is no longer dead. Joy to the world is risen. Alleluia is risen. Alleluia is risen. Alleluia. Alleluia. Hear the bell. Ringing, they're singing that we can be born again. Hear the bells ringing, they're singing Christ is risen from the dead. The angels upon the tombstone said he is risen just as he said. Quickly now, go tell his disciples that Jesus Christ is no longer dead. Joy to the world is risen. Alleluia is risen. Alleluia is risen. Alleluia. 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 There's just one more Easter tradition that Northland has, and uh, we will do this as Christians have done for hundreds of years, a traditional Easter benediction. I will say, He is risen, and you will respond with, He is risen indeed. We'll do it three times, each time with a little bit more enthusiasm and a little bit louder. He is risen. He is risen indeed. He is risen. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Go in His power.